0: Your film is now ready to be shown.
1: Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We have two segments today. The first will focus on the Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies Act, known as the EARNIT Act, and the second will look at the notion of tech exceptionalism and how it impedes regulation of tech firms in the public interest. First up, the EARNIT Act. A couple of weeks ago, in a tweet thread, Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat from Connecticut, signaled the reintroduction of the EARNIT Act, which he first put forward with Senator Lindsey Graham, a Republican from South Carolina, in 2020. But while the draft of the EARNIT Act may be new, the battle lines over it have not budged since it was first introduced two years ago. Digital civil and human rights groups appear to be gearing up to again oppose the victims' advocacy and law enforcement interest groups that support the legislation. Broadly speaking, the EARNIT Act would establish a National Commission on Online Child Sexual Exploitation Prevention that would be made up of a variety of federal officials, including representatives from the Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security. The Commission would be tasked with coming up with best practices for tech firms to prevent, reduce, and respond to the online sexual exploitation of children, including the enticement, grooming, sex trafficking, and sexual abuse of children, and the proliferation of online child sexual abuse material known as CSAM. It would also amend Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act to limit the liability protection it affords platforms for claims related to CSAM and make platforms that offer encrypted communications potentially liable for CSIM content. This section would open the platform to potential new legal action in state and federal courts, and, critics worry, potentially provide law enforcement with a backdoor to encrypted communications. The bill got a markup this week. Here's a sliver of Senator Blumenthal addressing the bill's critics.
2: There's no question, Big Tech, their armies of lobbyists and their allies, have sought to make this issue one of encryption. It's not about encryption. That is a gigantic red herring. This issue is not about free speech. Rape is not free speech. And there are companies that actually are consistent and vigorous partners in this effort because they know it is possible to stop it with little or no cost. Now, this bill is more than just about six, about. Section 230. The Earn It Act will stop exploitation before it starts by expanding mandatory reporting to include the enticement and trafficking of children. It will, second, assist prosecutors and law enforcement by doubling the time that tech companies are legally required to preserve evidence of exploitation. It helps law enforcement more quickly recover sexually exploited children and remove them from harm. It fosters the next generation of technologies to stop exploitation, and it does hold tech companies accountable when they fail survivors and they enable these predators to spread the kind of sexual child sexual abuse material that is so egregious. Uh, the The tech companies say, well, the answer is more resources, more money, more investigators. Yes, there should be more money, more resources, more investigators. But law enforcement itself says they need this statute. There are 250 child advocacy organizations, law enforcement organizations, such as uh, the National Association of Police Organizations, Major Cities, Police Chiefs Association, uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has helped lead this effort. In fact, reported that they received 29.3 million reports of child sexual abuse material. 29.3 million, 29.3 million faces, voices, individual children coerced into this kind of activity, their images forever on the Internet. So I ask my colleagues to support this measure, it is a narrow carve out to Section 230 that simply holds accountable big tech with a knowledge standard requiring that it know about it that is responsible and carefully crafted we've worked with colleagues like senator leahy in his very constructive objections we continue to work with colleagues such as senator lee and senator ossoff we're more than happy to continue this effort as we go to the floor i ask my colleagues to support this measure.
1: one person that took issue with the senator's characterization of the bill's critics is aligned with the interests of big tech is Dr. Natalie Marischal, Senior Policy and Partnerships Manager at Ranking Digital Rights. Natalie wrote in Tech Policy Press about what motivates her opposition to the EARNIT Act, and I invited her on to explain her perspective.
3: I'm Natalie Marischal. I'm the Senior Policy and Partnerships Manager at Ranking Digital Rights.
1: Natalie, you wrote this week for Tech Policy Press about the EARNIT Act, which has come back onto the agenda after being introduced two years ago. What is the EARNIT Act?
3: so my, my piece, uh, which is addressed to Senator Blumenthal, uh, starts out a little bit tongue in cheek. I was picking up on, on Twitter on, some, on uh, something that my colleague, Evan Greer at Fight for the Future, picked up on first, which was uh, that during the, mo- the markup for this bill, Senator Blumenthal really seemed to be uh, implying that the only reason anyone would be against this bill is if uh, you were in cahoots with big tech and big tech lobbyists. And that's just not true. To listen to Senator Blumenthal and other proponents of the bill speak, this is a uh, no-brainer bill that would punish companies for hosting or, or permitting other people to host and exchange images of children being abused, uh, what's known as uh, child sexual abuse imagery or, or CSAM. Obviously, no one, no, you know, no one wants that, and no one should want that. The problem is that the way that the bill is written, it wouldn't actually protect children. What it would do, though, is make it possible for uh, the U.S. government, specifically for a commission that comprises, among others, uh, the attorney general, to set the rules for the road for what kind of practices companies should put in place uh, with respect to uh, CSAM in order to maintain their Section 230 immunity uh, shield. And uh, what experts on uh, Section 230 and content governance on the internet and so on, and what the experience of SESTA-FOSTA tells us is that the impact that this is going to have is to uh, force companies to uh, to do what this commission tells them to do. It's it, The bill frames these recommendations as being optional, but because of the consequences, if they don't comply, it's not actually optional. And the impact is going to be to enter my encryption... And Senator Blumenthal, you know, has been saying uh, a lot that this is not an encryption bill. And maybe for him, maybe in his mind, the goal is not to undermine encryption. But, you know, you have to go back to the genesis of this bill back in in late 2019, early 2020. uh, That's when it was introduced. But obviously, it was in in the works for some time before that. You know, this was, of course, the before times. So it might be hard to, to remember clearly back then. Back in 2019, you know, Trump was president, right? And Bill Barr was the attorney general. Bill Barr was, uh, you know, waging the latest chapter in the crypto wars. I remember sitting in uh, the FBI auditorium at this really bizarre conference uh, that the attorney general and uh, the FBI director had had put together uh, that was basically okay. an elegy to the concept of uh, encryption backdoors and so-called lawful access Regime. So where they were say basically saying like, well, there must be a way for there to be encrypted communications, but that law enforcement with a subpoena can access and nobody else. And the thing is, you know, the world's cryptographers have been insisting since the dawn of Diffie Hillman that, you know, math either works or it doesn't work. If it's weak enough to be uh, broken by by law enforcement or, or whoever, then it's weak enough to be broken by, uh, by any criminal, any foreign adversary, whoever it is that you're trying to protect your communications from. So, so that's the genesis of of Earn It. And I think it's a, it's a really tricky debate because it's kind of a, the confluence of two issues that people feel really, really strongly about being encryption and uh, protecting children. And, uh, you know, but I think what's important to do here is to look really clearly at the text of the bill and what it would do, as well as, as I was saying, at the the backstory of how it came to be. And it's really clear that this is an encryption bill. It's a bill that would not have uh, the desired impact of protecting children.
1: You you know, you're up against the supporters of the bill uh, who, you know, include a bunch of different stakeholders. Uh, The announcement of the resuscitation of the bill it includes support from over 240 groups. There are the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, Rights for Girls, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, and then a bunch of law enforcement groups, National District Attorneys Association, National Association of Police Organizations, the Rape Abuse and Incest National Network. So just a real uh, you know wide range. And this thing appears to be also gathering some support in the Senate. Uh, you've got multiple lawmakers that have signed on as well as as supporters, is your coalition, I don't know, moving as quickly?
3: You know, that's hard to say because I'm, you know, I'm not really at the center of, of this coalition. This is a really legal and uh, technically legal issue. And that's, that's not my, my background. But I, what I will say is that this is a really hard bill to be publicly opposed to when you're an elected official, because the soundbite of Senator so-and-so just hates children or doesn't care about child abuse, just writes itself.
1: One of the things that Senator Blumenthal appears to be doing is he really, uh, you know, he feels a, a sort of I think, honest sense of anguish over the problem of child sexual abuse material. If he were here, if you could speak to him directly, what would you say to him about this bill and perhaps what he should be doing to work on that problem?
3: That's a great question. All of us care about protecting children and protecting children from sexual abuse in particular. You know, I'm a parent. You're a parent. I'm sure a lot of our of our listeners are, are parents or have children in their lives that they care about. But just saying that a bill is intended to do something does not therefore follow that that is the thing that it will do, right? And just because, you know, and this, this goes to the, the point that I was making in, uh, in, in, in my piece for TPP, as Americans, we like to think in binaries. We like to think in t- terms of the good guys and the bad guys. And when it comes to uh, tech policy and civil rights and civil liberties and human rights, that's not a really useful way to think because you have at least three groups of competing interests here. You have corporate interests, you have government interests, and then you have the public interest. So, you know, I'm a public interest advocate, but neither governments nor corporate actors are the quote unquote good guys or bad guys across all issues. Right? So when it comes to earn it and encryption more generally, uh, typically, civil society groups in, uh, in, in the digital rights space uh, are going to end up working more closely with corporate actors uh, than with governments. But on other issues like uh, addressing hate speech or privacy rights and uh, various labor rights, certainly governments and uh, government agencies are much more in alignment with the public interest than corporate actors are. Uh, so that's really the point that, that I wanted to make to uh, to Senator Blumenthal here that just because uh, someone is making the same argument or a similar argument as a big tech lobbyist on that particular day does not make them a big tech lobbyist and does not mean that you should dismiss their arguments.
1: Is there any way you think this conversation could be moved forward? Do you think EARN IT Act could uh, be fixed? Is there any way to fix it or is it sort of fundamentally flawed?
3: No, it's fundamentally flawed. You know, all of these Section 230 reform bills, which earn it is is one, kind of hinge on the proposition that the core problem with corporate behavior, with big tax corporate behavior, is that it's too hard to sue them. Right. That uh, lawsuits are uh, the primary way in which we both prevent harm and seek remedy. And that's something that's really embedded into American legal and political culture. Right. And in in other countries that we like to compare ourselves to, that's not how things work. Right. There's a stronger appetite for uh, for regulation, for government enforcement of laws and so on. So I think, you know, we, we want to protect children. So let's look at the things that actually will protect children. Now, that's, again, not my area expertise, but uh, a lot of people I respect uh, speak highly of the Invest in Child Safety Act, which would uh, add a lot of resources to to the DOJ, to the FBI, to NCMIC, to various task forces, at uh, various levels of government around the country in order to preemptively, you know, protect children, right? We need to put more money into schools. We need to put more money into all the levels of government that are here to actually work with children and make their lives better on a day-to-day basis. I think that's much more likely to have, uh, to have the impact that we want to see than making it easier to sue Facebook. Uh, so one of the main things that we do at Ranking Digital Rights is that uh, we publish regular rankings of uh, different companies, uh, big tech companies, big telecom companies on a set of best practices that we determined in consultation with a, a wide range of experts and civil society groups around the world. And uh, one of those uh, best practices is providing Strong end-to-end encryption uh, by default uh, for users' personal communications, their personal private communications. And uh, part of my job is uh, to uh, advocate for laws and policies around the world that make it possible for companies to comply with these rules. So, you know, earn it would in fact make it impossible for uh, for many companies, if not most companies that operate in the U.S. to uh, provide uh, secure messaging services uh, to, to their users.
1: Natalie, thank you very much.
3: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. Next up, a look at tech exceptionalism. Last week, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI and the former president of Y Combinator, issued a series of provocative tweets. He said, Techno optimism is the only good solution to our current problems. Unfortunately, Somehow expressing optimism about the future has become a radical act. He went on to suggest tech's critics are in favor of austerity and pessimism, that people want more and better, not less and worse, and that the only way to get to a future of abundance is through the promise of tech. My next two guests, Yael Eisenstadt and Nils Gilman, see this type of myth-building around tech as dangerous. In Noema Magazine, they write about how tech uses the promise of endless innovation to ward off democratic oversight of its present-day harms.
4: Hi, I'm Yael Eisenstadt. I wear multiple hats, but most importantly for this conversation, I am a future of democracy fellow at the Berggruen Institute.
0: Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Nils Gilman. I'm the vice president of programs at the Berggruen Institute in Los Angeles. I'm also the, uh, the deputy editor of Noema magazine.
1: Tell us about Noema.
0: So Noema was launched two years ago uh, in June, right as the pandemic was sort of reaching its first crescendo. It's an imprint of the Berggruen Institute, and it's a magazine that aims to explore philosophical ideas at the confluence of culture and politics and governance. Published a couple times a week. Um, online, we publish a physical magazine uh, once a year, um, usually thematically focused, taking some of the key ideas that have been published in the magazine uh, and package them up into a into a nice-looking tabletop magazine.
1: Excellent. So one of these... Pieces that's been published this week is the myth of tech exceptionalism: how tech uses the promise of endless innovation to ward off regulating even its present-day harms. What brought the two of you together to write this piece?
4: I was very excited to join Berggruen as a fellow, in part, so I can kick around big ideas with people like Nils. Um, And we were having a conversation when I was in Los Angeles, and I just said, "I mean, it seems so obvious." But I said one of the things that frustrates me the most is this argument. We keep hearing the we do more good than harm argument and how that argument is just used to completely distract the conversation about regulation by using an argument that I think is pointless, that's unsubstantiated, that's unquantifiable, and that should have nothing to do with government's core function of protecting the public from harms, regardless of whatever good they're doing. So I just, I was telling Nils my frustration about that. We started kicking around ideas and then we decided, well, let's write a piece about it.
0: As Yael and I were kicking around the ideas, we we sort of started asking ourselves, where did this idea in the tech space come from, that somehow tech is uniquely uh, exempt from, the regulatory oversight of governments, which are meant to ensure that corporations produce products that are beneficial for the public and for the consumers, um, and that mitigate against the harms that many products can potentially produce. I mean, we totally take it for granted that chemical companies or pharmaceutical companies or automotive companies uh, have to be subject to regulation because it's pretty clear that those kinds of companies can produce harms. Um, And it's also seems very obvious in the year 2022 that tech produces harms. And so we want to know why, why does tech think it doesn't have the same sorts of responsibilities and um, you know, obligations to respect the regulatory oversight functions that governments, the modern governments all produce. And as we explored that idea, like where did this idea come from? That led us to this idea of tech exceptionalism that we tried to expound on in the piece.
4: Part of what I enjoy doing this with Nils is we don't agree on every single point. We have some different ideas about what should be done, but we both really honed in together on this idea. And I also like how you know, Nils is better at like really digging into the words and sort of is tech and I start saying, wait, is that a pronoun? Is that a noun? Is tech really an industry? Is it a singular thing? And so that started taking us into some of the directions in the piece as well.
1: So explain to me this notion of tech exceptionalism as you've defined it in the piece.
0: Sure. The basic idea of tech exceptionalism comes out of exactly what Yael just said, that uh, we were asking, well, what is tech, actually? People say they work in tech. I, I used to work in the software industry, the enterprise software industry, uh, 15 years ago, and we didn't refer to ourselves as, as the tech industry. We called ourselves the enterprise software industry. That meant we, I worked for a company that sold software products Two corporations to help automate various parts of their business functions. Tech is something that emerged in the Web 2.0 world uh, as a term that covered a whole variety of different kinds of companies, some of which are software companies, some of which are social media companies, and some of which are actually companies that, if you didn't call them tech, would actually be pretty easily recognizable as disruptive forces in traditional industries. So for example, Uber is described as a tech company. In fact, it's a taxi service um, with a technological platform that enables different kinds of people who don't carry medallions that are regulated by the state to be able to provide transportation services and for people to consume those
2: transportation services.
0: But it's it's basically, it's a transportation services company like a taxi firm. Uh, And yet it gets called a tech company. Likewise, Netflix gets called a tech company um, even though it is you know, not that different from Disney or Fox. It's producing content, it's rolling it out across platforms, um, and so on. And yet somehow it gets called a tech company when Disney, say, does not get called a tech company. That's not because Disney's not using lots of technology. It's not because Disney's not innovating. But somehow the term tech becomes a moniker that people in the industry see themselves as being aligned against old dinosaurs. Now, the old dinosaurs, generally speaking, have accepted that they need to be regulated. Uh, They're 20th century companies, generally speaking, and they accept that the 20th century form of the administrative state applies to them. Tech companies, however, even though they're working in many of the same spaces as these traditional companies, think of themselves as being outside of the traditional kinds of spaces. They're disruptors. And therefore, that process of disruption gives them a special quality which they think should serve as a kind of a get out of jail free card for regulatory oversight.
4: Yeah. And let me add just a little bit to that. So part of, I'm going to go more basic for a second. I mean, part of what frustrated me a lot after leaving Facebook and starting to join these conversations about how to regulate some of these things, I just found, and I grew up in the Silicon Valley. I found there was like this fundamental belief that if I am a technologist, I am more innovative, I am smarter than the bureaucrat. And you can't possibly understand all the good I'm doing. And you just want to get in the way. And I and that's not exact that's a little bit of part of what fits into this tech exceptionalism. Right. And it's really interesting because this is such a silly conversation to have, but I kept saying to people, so just because I'm not a computer scientist and I focused on the humanities and on International affairs and economics that somehow makes me less smart and less exceptional is just absurd. And so I want to kind of reshape some of this conversation, not just about do you get, as Nils said, a get out of jail free card because of all the good that you think you do in the world. But I want to hone in on a term that actually came from Nils after we put everything together. It's this this idea that tech exceptionalism is really used in part as regulatory arbitrage, right? It's, we are so exceptional. We are doing so much good for the world. If you get in our way by considering any sort of regulation against any externalities, you're hindering our ability to do even more exceptional things in the future.
0: Right. And I think that the key word in what Yael just said is the word future. In most industries, it's taken for granted that the goods and bads that the industry may produce in the present is what you need to evaluate in terms of how you set up regulations around that industry. People who work in tech believe that because they are uniquely innovative compared to the old dinosaurs that they're going to there's there's a promise of future innovations that is almost limitless as long as the you know the stupid bureaucrats the, the, super, the, the, the less intelligent humanists don't get in their way. That's, you know, ma- even if you believe it's true that there's many new innovations to take place, the idea that this indemnifies you against the harms you're creating in the present strikes us as being um, deeply problematic.
1: So you talk about this idea of futurity at scale. I think that's tied, that's what you're talking about here, right? Um, this notion that down the line, if you just let us keep doing what we're doing, uh, Facebook, we will... We'll, we'll give you artificial uh, general intelligence and uh, really solve all the world's problems. Uh, you know, really, you make the United States a, a superpower in perpetuity and solve all the world's productivity problems and solve climate change while we're at it.
0: Right. I, so look, I, I think one, way to, one metaphor to think about this is imagine you're a pharmaceutical company and you say, look, if the regulators just get out of the way, who knows? We might cure cancer. So what are the regulators doing? And then they use that then as an excuse for not having any regulatory oversight, not having to go through you know, phased trials of their products. We would never accept that in the case of a pharmaceutical company that the, because they might one day cure cancer generically, right, or cure all diseases. Right? You know, it's, it's interesting if you look at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, philanthropic arm of, uh, of Mark Zuckerberg's uh, activities, their mission statement is cure all disease. Well, if, if your goal is to cure all disease and you think technology can cure all disease, who the hell would get in the way of that? Now, of course, you're never gonna cure all disease. It's, not, it's like a nonsensical idea, but by proposing something so fantastic, it sort of says, why would you who don't even understand how to possibly cure all disease, get in our way with your petty fogging bureaucratic impediments?
4: Yeah, and can I add one more point here? <laughs> Because I realized, by the way, similar to assuming that anyone in government who wants to regulate anything in the tech industry is anti-tech, anti-this, too stupid to do it, whatever you want to say about them. That's also how they probably feel about Nils and me right now having this conversation, as opposed to recognizing, I want technology. You see, I work with so many startups and young founders, and I'm like, this is exciting what you're trying to build. Let's protect against potential harms. But one of the things that What I like about Noema and writing for them is it allowed me to explore like a little bit more artistically or a little bit more in long form, some of these culture ideas. And I really honed in also on this macro versus micro idea. So when we say we do more good than harm, whether it's today or in the future, we're going to do something fantastic. It's really this, not only does that mean it's that technologist or founder who's defining what is good or harm, But I also think it's a macro level view, right? Like if we cure cancer at the macro level, that is a wonderful, amazing thing. Even though this doesn't always play out the way we would like it to, a politician or legislator's role is to also consider the micro level of their constituents. And not just in the macro, we're going to Cure cancer, but at the micro level, we also want to make sure we're not poisoning this entire community here with this bad drug. I believe many people in the tech industry—they really mean it. Like they, re- this this macro level, but overall, this is such a good thing. And I think it's regulation's job to look at the micro level as well. Of okay, but we also have to think about the individuals and the externalities that might be harming individuals.
1: You have this this uh, kind of nice idea in here. You know, thinking about how. The tech exceptionalism myth serves a function both for small companies, for startups, in terms of valuation arbitrage, and another function when they're big, this idea of regulatory arbitrage. So, you know, this idea is really helpful to companies that are in the tech space at all sizes.
0: It's interesting if you look at specifically, for example, Tesla, which, you know, is perhaps an extreme case, but Tesla's a car company, right? They've got 1.3% market share in North America and Europe, uh, last I checked, something like 1.3%. And yet they are worth more than Toyota, GM, Ford, Nissan, Hyundai, Volkswagen, BMW, and Mercedes combined. Now, why is that? That's because somehow people who have invested in this believe that Elon Musk and Tesla are going to somehow create innovations that will... Put all those dinosaurs maybe out of business, or certainly shrink them in size, and that one day, you know, over half the cars on the road will be Teslas. I mean, that's presumably what it means when you say that Tesla's worth as much as all of those other companies combined as a long-term proposition. Now, as soon as you pose it that way, it's pretty obvious that Tesla's probably never going to get there. And I think you know, credit to Elon Musk, and he's managed to convince you know that many investors to to pile into his thing, but. Once we sort of name what the function is, it becomes pretty clear that that's kind of naive view of what Tesla is compared to every other company. And you also notice that in that vein, Elon is constantly arguing that if it weren't for the regulators, we would already have self-driving cars, self-driving Teslas specifically. It's the regulators that are slowing down the ability of Tesla to realize the possibility of putting all these dinosaurs out of business and owning the entire automotive space.
1: Last week, right around this time, uh, Sam Altman hit tweet on a thread that really revolved around this idea of of techno-optimism, right? He said techno-optimism is the only good solution to our current problems. Unfortunately, somehow expressing optimism about the future has become a radical act. Um, He goes on to talk about the problem of climate change, how he believes those who are opposed to tech are, you know, espousing a degrowth mindset, this sort of notion uh, that ultimately um, technological progress is fundamentally necessary to solve society's problems you know it won't automatically solve society's problems To his credit he recognizes that at least Um, but that you know ultimately uh, techno-optimism has to be the substrate for any optimism about the future how does that fit into your conception here
4: so the reason i immediately sent that twitter thread to nils and sort of laughed i was like well (laughs) first thing i said was sam altman's not gonna like our piece you know, what's interesting about it is, and I brought this, this is my point about I'm automatically viewed as anti-tech, a tech critic, part of the tech lash. And, and he's using some of that language as well. What is that doing? That's painting me as someone who, because I want to see technology flourish without harming people, or at least with the ability to minimize some of the harm, that means I hate tech. And, and that argument is set up to also help minimize people like me in our arguments. And it falls into also the conversations about how to regulate tech. I fundamentally wanna reframe what he is saying. I agree, of course, techno-optimism and technology, we are going to have to have incredible technological innovation to solve our biggest challenges, whether it's climate change, whether, I mean, any major challenge. I just disagree with him that therefore that in and of itself means that everybody else who doesn't believe that therefore we should be untouched in the technology industry is anti-tech because, you know, to Nell's point earlier about what we've come to accept about the audio industry or the chemical industry, let's be frank, none of these industries wanted to be regulated either. And in some of them, it wasn't like from day one, we understood the harms of the, Fossil fuel industry, that took a long time, including because of some of the way they captured the research on it to begin with. But his Twitter thread perfectly illustrates what we are trying to say in a way. Technology is going to cure and solve all of our problems. And, yep. you know, if a few people get hurt along the way, it's a grander good that we are working towards.
1: He does say, it's obviously better to save a million lives in the future than one life today, but without really appreciating the power of compound growth, it's hard to reason about the likelihood of such a trade-off. We can build AGI, we can colonize space, we can get fusion to work and solar to mass scale, we can cure all human disease, we can build new realities, we are only a few breakthroughs away from abundance at a scale that is difficult to imagine. And this sounds like religion to me.
0: This is a perfect expression of what we meant in the piece by futurity at scale. He's expressing the possibility that technology will be will yield a cornucopia and that anybody who disagrees is Ted Kaczynski. Right. Anybody who thinks that, well, maybe we should like slow things down a little bit. So we mitigate harms in the present as we try to reach for the stars more more or less literally is basically like advocating that we are, uh, you know, go back and live in a hut in Montana. that that they're Luddites. And this is just, you know, it's a straw man, right? I mean, at best, it's a straw man, and it is a kind of a, it's certainly a faith in the emancipatory possibilities of technology. Now, I, I want to just emphasize again, I agree entirely with Yale. I consider myself a pro technology person. I want to live in a high tech world. I enjoy living with gadgets. I enjoy the fact that there's instant connectivity to everybody around the world. Um, I find it miraculous and fun when I'm, you know, talking on my cell phone, going 70 miles an hour down the highway that I'm talking to somebody on the other side of the world who's in a high-speed bullet train going at 200 miles an hour. This is a remarkable feat of technology at numerous different scales, numerous different kinds of technology. This This is amazing and wonderful, right? I appreciate that we have, you know, the kinds of agricultural technologies that's improved the productivity of agriculture, you know, tenfold over the last century, which has allowed 8 billion people to not starve to death on this planet. There's there's all sorts of ways in which I'm pro-technology. I believe in genetically modified organisms. A lot of people are skeptical of that. Like, it depends on what exactly the modification is. And GMOs are a really good example. Like, some genetic modifications are good, right? Other kinds of genetic modifications might be horrifying, and we should have some regulatory oversight for those things, right? We should have people who want to propose new kinds of gene-modified organisms have to go through some kind of a trial process before they deploy at scale a technology which could be catastrophic. And it could be catastrophic in the, in the future. It could be catastrophic in the present. So I just think that this argument that Altman is making is basically strawmanning the other side in the name of a faith in a boundless future. And I don't know that, I mean, he literally makes a case for a boundless future, unbounded even by the planet. We're going to reach for the stars if only the regulators get out of the way. And I just think it's nonsense.
4: Yeah, I mean, one more point to that too is why does it have to be all or nothing? So we didn't really get into this in the piece on the sort of binary thinking, but that's always been one of the things that's frustrated me the most about some of the tech regulation conversations. It's all or nothing. You're either gonna kill innovation or you're going to let innovation flourish untouched so that we can achieve all these amazing things. And we don't have enough deep conversations about what trade-offs are we willing to accept. It has to be all or nothing, as opposed to what are the trade-offs, what are what are we willing to not protect in order for this future, or what are we willing to possibly slow down a bit? And I know that gets wonky and nuance has died on the internet, and I get all of that, but it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And this idea of tech exceptionalism is what's saying, no, it does have to be all or nothing. Because if you touch us at all, then look at all these amazing things we're not gonna be able to do for you.
0: I wanna add one thing that I think is really important. It wasn't in our piece, but is sort of a, a subtext in the piece. And that is the question of who is the we? I mean, the implication of tech exceptionalism is that the people who should get to decide what kind of technology gets built and deployed are the technologists and the leaders of tech companies. Government is there to provide a democratic input so that you know, there may be lots of things that are great. Certainly it's great for tech founders if there's no regulation, they're gonna get rich almost for sure. And if a few people get harmed along the way, well, you, know, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. But the main point is they want to arrogate for themselves decisions that affect all of us. And in a democratic society, we have an institution that's designed specifically to ensure that there is a view of the holistic implications of various things that go on in in our communities. And that's called the government, right? And we have a democracy that's meant to provide democratic oversight, exercised through various kinds of government agencies that themselves are overseen by democratically elected leaders. And that's how we ensure that societies, broadly speaking, our collective interests are going to be represented in the deployment of various kinds of technologies and systems. That's exactly what they don't want to have happen. They want to say, we get to decide. It's arrogating decision rights for themselves rather than sharing those decision rights more broadly through the mechanisms of government.
4: We are not saying that our government is functioning the way it should right now. Like, I want to be really crystal clear before someone jumps on me and says, well, yeah, but. And no, we didn't write an entire piece about everything we think government should do that could be the next piece possibly. But yes, our government is not representing all of us and protecting all of us the way it should. And yes, it needs to innovate. And yes, it needs to also catch up with the technological landscape. All of these things are undeniably true. But I live in a world where I want to help my government do better to protect me and the people I care about, as opposed to saying, and therefore get out of our way. We do also get the government we deserve. And so I just want to be clear, this isn't saying that government is handling this all perfectly well. We are just talking about, though, this absurd argument of, again, using the term innovation is indemnification. We are going to innovate, so get out of our way.
0: Let me just add one other thing to that because I think it's really important. And I want to quote here, a somewhat long quote from Stuart Russell, um, who is one of the most important AI researchers in the world. He's a professor at Berkeley. He's not somebody that anybody in the tech industry could possibly dismiss as a tech hater um, or, uh, or as uh, somehow technologically naive, but he, he himself is very clear about this. And let me just read this because I think it's important to get the whole thing. He says, and I quote, regulation of any kind is strenuously opposed in the Valley. Whereas we're accustomed to the idea that pharmaceutical companies have to show safety and beneficial efficacy through clinical trials before they can release a product to the general public, the software industry operates by a different set of rules, namely the empty set. A bunch of dudes chugging a Red Bull at a software company can unleash a product or an upgrade that affects literally billions of people with no third party oversight whatsoever. Inevitably, however, the tech industry is gonna have to acknowledge that its products matter. And if they matter, then it matters that the products not have harmful effects. This means that there will be rules governing the nature of interactions with humans, prohibiting designs that say consistently manipulate preferences or produce addictive behavior. Now he's talking specifically about software and AI in this, in this passage, but the same thing can be said for the tech industry as a whole, right? I mean, and one should think through also the ramifications that may be beyond the specific products that get produced. So for example, Airbnb comes in and creates, you know, a tech company. In fact, it's a brokerage service for people to be able to initially sell, you know, couch surfing uh, tourists, and then eventually allows people to rent their apartments out in mostly city centers. And it's resulted in a secondary effect of the hollowing out of lots of cities, particularly in middle-sized cities in Europe, where as many as half the apartments that used to be filled with local residents are now, you know, rented out on a periodic basis to tourists, and people are monetizing their assets but it has a negative social effect because it hollows out and makes the actual city centers not populated by the people who used to live there, prices them out. The micro effects of allowing people to rent apartments on the one hand, rent apartments on a periodic basis and rent out their apartments on a periodic basis may be fine, but the macro effect can be very negative. And that's exactly the kind of thing that regulators should be overseeing. And in fact, people are beginning to put in regulations around Airbnb for precisely that reason. Airbnb doesn't like that, but the that fact is, once they took their technology to scale, it started to have social effects that were way beyond what anybody, including, I'm sure, the Airbnb executives, had ever anticipated. And that's true for many, many, many technological innovations. When you start shifting the social um, incentives that people have through technology, it can create emergent properties that are totally unanticipated and can be quite malign and therefore need to be overseen by government reg- regulators of some sort.
1: Yael, yeah, you mentioned arguments that might immediately be made uh, to counter this piece. This piece is not about Facebook. It mentions Facebook. Um, Facebook might come back and say, hey, guess what? You know, we've been actually running ads, inviting regulation. We'd love the government to come to some terms about how to regulate tech. In fact, we've been uh, trying to encourage it. We're, we're doing our best to you know, engage with the government and lead to new laws and new ideas.
4: Just for anyone who's listening who doesn't know, I did work at Facebook and left Facebook quite publicly uh, and have been speaking out about them ever since. Just throwing that out there before I give this answer. I have multiple parts to this answer. First of all, one of the few positive things you'll hear me say about Facebook, maybe positive is the wrong word, but I agree that there are some things that regulation could actually help Facebook. Let's look at just political advertising, for example. Facebook is in such a mess over how to deal with political advertising and what classifies as a political ad or an issue ad. And it's different in every country and it's different in every state. And any decision they make is going to get them on the wrong side of somebody. And I'm not making excuses for them because they are the ones who chose to dominate the political advertising space. So with great power comes great responsibility. They made that choice. That said, I can understand in that instance well, government hasn't caught up all of the rules around political advertising that apply in the media space, in the newspaper space, in the radio space, on television. Why hasn't government made rules in the digital space? It would help Facebook be able to make clear decisions about political ads without being the arbiters of truth, without like they could say to their investors at that point who are pushing them in any particular direction, we are complying with the law. So there are ways actually where regulation in certain areas do help tech companies because it gives them that we are complying with the law as opposed to an investor saying you're not protecting our fiduciary, you know, your fiduciary responsibilities to us. So that's wonky, but there are ways where that's actually legitimate. That said, in the case of Facebook, there's lots of underhandedness going on with these ads as well because Facebook wants to help dictate the terms of regulation, some of which would probably help entrench them as the most powerful in the space at the expense of smaller companies. I don't think Facebook has proven itself to be a trustworthy, you know, player in the space of how to regulate. So that's, I, I think all of those commercials are meant to actually pervert some of the conversations about regulation. But At the end of the day, I have always said I also blame our government. Like, our government has fallen for the tech exceptionalism myth as well, right? Like, you actually hear legislators who, whether it's because their constituents happen to be big tech companies, whether it's because of lobbying efforts, or whether it's because they have just actually believed this. Because, like, back in the 90s, we made certain laws because there was all this promise. Let's let the Internet flourish. Let's let technology flourish and then they started to buy into the anything we do is going to kill that. And by the way, many people in our circles who really want to help think about how to regulate technology, they jump so fast to criticize every single potential unintended consequence of every single bill out there that it also is complicating legislators' efforts to do anything. I know the sorry this is a long answer, but One of the things Nils and I first wrote, and then we cut it out of the piece because it started going off in a different direction was, is there a way to make legislating a more innovative, iterative process as well to catch up with this environment? And that's a whole nother conversation for another day. But so that was a long answer, but all of those things.
1: Yeah, I do do think that's an interesting um, direction to go in. And we should have that conversation at some point because- One of the things that's really problematic, it seems to me, around the idea of of regulation or new laws around tech is the idea that, you know, any decision the government might take would be permanent, you know, and we can never fix it. We can never run an A-B test, right? We can never uh, introduce a a new idea about how we might regulate a certain technology. Um, And I I suppose that's because a lot of it has to do with speech with regard to the social media platforms that um, it's deemed as as, uh, special in that regard. Um, another kind of sub thread here, which Yael, you and I have talked about quite a lot is this notion of the importance of tech or tech exceptionalism to national security. Um, and I just wanted to kind of quickly ask you about that and whether that kind of came into your thinking when you were putting this piece together. We, we know that Mark Zuckerberg has been prepared to make that argument that other tech firms have certainly made the argument that their unfettered advance is important Because if we don't get there, you know, the Chinese will get there first. The Zucker Zee argument, um, as I've heard it referred to.
4: Yeah. So I'll kick off quickly and then I'm sure Nils will have thoughts. We did not really get into that, into this piece because, you know, as you know, you might have 10,000 ideas you want to put into a piece and Nils and I had to constantly scale down and focus to not make it a full book. But that said, And now I'm going to do another caveat. I spent 18, most of my career in the national security world. So um, this is where it gets a little complicated. There's a very strong argument of if you do anything to hinder the progress of some of these companies, including, by the way, breaking up Facebook, for example, you are ceding the space to China. You are going to allow China to win. If you do anything to hinder progress here in our own technology industry, that's one of the arguments. There's multiple arguments, but let's just look at that one, for example. And I've had these very strong debates, including with people who now like are in government thinking about these things. And I still fall on the side of what are we willing to sacrifice in order to say that Facebook is more powerful than any particular Chinese company? Are we, are we willing to sacrifice our democratic values? Are we willing to sacrifice, you know, what if, whether or not you agree that Facebook is or is not helping foster more authoritarian, you know, cultures in certain parts of the world, is it something I, I do not fall on the side of? I am willing to sacrifice Both, by the way, are free market principles of competition to bolster this huge company that is not, in my opinion, serving our democracy incredibly well. Because at the end of the day, if we give all that up, then who cares if China beats us by having a technology company that beats us? We're killing ourselves off. That said, I don't want to downplay the conversation about some technologies that it is true, like the future of AI and where China's going to come in on that and where we're going to come into that are incredibly important conversations. But to use the straw man term that Nils used earlier, to say to have Mark Zuckerberg say it G or me is a complete straw man argument. Because first of all, I'm not sure I believe Mark Zuckerberg is providing that much value to liberal democracies. And second of all, That's not really the point when it comes to a company like Facebook.
0: Now, let me add a couple of things to that. I totally agree with what Yael just said. The first thing and I think Yael would agree with this is that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about whether the U.S. and China or the West and China are in a Cold War, a new Cold War. Um, We can have a debate about that. It's probably mainly a debate about how we define a Cold War. But what's very clear is that there's a major technology race happening between China and the United States in particular, maybe the West more broadly. I mean, that, that's just an indubitable fact. Then there's the question of like, okay, what should the strategy of the West be to stay at the technology frontier? I mean, there's a lot of advantages to being, being a country that's at the technology frontier. You have higher productivity. Um, you compete more effectively in markets. That means you're going to have cheaper goods when you import them. You can export value add. You, you, know, you want to be at the technology frontier. But there's two things to be said. I think there's a lot of arguments to be made that the current structure of what's called tech actually is not producing a lot of innovation that's really good for us in terms of the competition with China, specifically. Um, it's not producing a lot of productivity-enhancing goods. And that's really, at the end of the day, the technology we care about. We want to have better chips. We want to have better machine tools. Um, we, you know, AI may promise that eventually, but we haven't yet seen huge productivity gains coming out of that. And if you talk about Facebook specifically, if anything, Facebook is a productivity eroding pro- platform. And the notion that we need to like protect their monopoly so that we can compete effectively with China is just absurd. I mean, you know, on its face. I, so specifically, if we're gonna talk about that argument with respect to Facebook, you know, why do we need to have Facebook have a monopoly on social media so that we can win the social media competition with China? That I just, the whole thing is weird as an argument. Now. If you're talking about other parts of the tech space, I think there's better arguments to be made that the U.S. government may want to have a proactive role actually in promoting certain kinds of things. And that actually is a pro-regulatory view. Like we may want to, for example, try to regain uh, the lead in chip manufacturing, right, which we basically lost to Taiwan primarily at this point. Uh, we may want to, you know, make heavy investments in green technology because that's clearly one place that if we're going to make a green energy transition, you want to be in the lead on those things. The U.S. government might want to regulate those markets, might want to guarantee markets for companies that produce green technology uh, at scale. Um, so there's all sorts of ways in which the government might want to have an industrial policy to be able to compete effectively with China. I'm actually very much in favor of that, That's other parts of the Institute, Berggruen Institute, are actually actively involved in promoting those kinds of interventions, specifically to you know promote competition and to keep the United States uh, as a, at, the, at the highest productivity uh, in, in the world. I mean, I think there's a total national interest and that national interest percolates down to us as individual workers and consumers in this country. Um, but none of that implies that tech companies should go unregulated,
4: none of them. We didn't want to start going down all of our thoughts about different legislation or regulation because that wasn't really the point. The point is just dispelling this idea that there shouldn't be regulation to begin with or again, bringing it back to, it sounds silly, but the more good than harm argument, and, and it sounds so on your face and obvious, but that's why we mentioned in here, you wouldn't accept that argument for the Catholic church. You know, they do good in communities, so therefore they shouldn't be held accountable for pedophilia. I mean, it's an abs- when you make it that obvious, it's absurd. So why should this thing called the tech industry get that free pass? But I also think, you know, again, I grew up in the Silicon Valley. I I grew up around people who were, you know, really at the early stage of of what this all was going to look like and very just optimistic environment. And I really do believe that this entire generation, this is in this piece, but an entire generation of so-called innovators have really grown up believing. I wanted to use the word even as strong as indoctrinated, but maybe that was too strong. Believing that technology is the key to all things great, to making the world better, that their founders' visions, Mark Zuckerberg's a very good example for how to do so, are unquestionably true, and that anything that government does is only going to stymie this, you know, huge engine of growth and prosperity. And I just think we're at the point now where can we finally dispense of that idea and get to work on thinking about how can we let innovation flourish while also protecting very real human beings today that live in this country and world today? So that's just kind of the overarching thing that I can't believe we still have to say, but I think we do.
1: Niels, Yael, thank you so much.
4: Thank you. And enjoy your weekend, ju- everybody.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Justin. This was great. And it's really nice to meet you. Yael, thank you for inviting me in on this and, uh... I'll just say that it was also just fun working with you on the piece. I mean, I I I write things in general because I don't yet know what I think about the subject and it's a way of working things out. One reason I like having a co-author is the co-author brings different ideas and forces me to think harder about what I actually think about something. And it was just a pleasure to work on that with you. So
4: Yeah, it was fun. And Justin, you can tell that Niels and I are not passionate about this subject at all. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Both of you
1: have a good weekend.
4: Yeah, you Bye. too. Bye-bye.
1: That's it for this week's episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justinettechpolicy.press at or find us on Twitter at Techpolicypress. Press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And thank you for listening.
3: Pussy press.